0: We are going to begin at the beginning. But before we get there, let me just tell you where we've been. We, we concentrate on verse-by-verse exposition. If you're new with us, we concentrate on going through uh, books of the Bible, verse-by-verse. But we've had a general vision. When I first got here, we preached through a general vision. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Eric preached on John 15, a general vision of philosophy of ministry. We've looked at baptism, membership, the Lord's Supper. We have a few series going now. We have the anatomy of a Christian, where at one time we looked at the head of the Christian, the heart of the Christian, and the hands of a Christian. Maybe in the future we'll look at the mouth, the lungs, and the feet of the Christian. At Christmas time, last year we looked at, uh, well, two years ago, if I'm speaking correctly, in 2011. We looked at Matthew's account. This year we looked at Luke's account. Next year we'll do something different. We've gone through the book of Philippians, and we've chosen these in order for a particular reason. It's not... Uh, even random when we choose these books. Uh, Philippians, a joyful gospel partnership. What should we look at like as a church? Nehemiah, let's build something together, something bigger than ourselves. And that is based upon that we're gathering together, as partnering in building something based on the gospel. And so we went through the gospel of Mark, the gospel in action, and we started the Sunday after Christmas right up to Easter. Then we said, okay, if we've got that gospel foundation, we've got to go out. And we looked at Jonah. The Reluctant Missionary. And then we paused and looked at all the while, Second John, we must walk in truth and love. And then last year, during the summer, as we will do in every summer, is just look at how to connect with God through the Scriptures and prayer. Uh, we covered about 10 of them last year. If we do 10 to 15, by 2025, we'll cover the book of Psalms. And then this f- last fall, we did James, True Faith Works, that if we say we love God and believe in Him, It is evident in our life. And so today, we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to go through the book of Genesis, and it's about building a biblical worldview. So let me pray one more time, and we'll get started. Father, this is Your Word. It is absolutely true in what it says. It is clear in how it presents it. I pray, Lord, as we begin this book, Lord, that we will have a biblical worldview, a true worldview. There is no other book that compares to this book. It is the most reliable book in history. I pray that we would take each verse and let it marinate in our minds. Just as those young men uh, are allowing this book to move from their head to their hearts, I pray we would do the same. I pray, Lord, today as we look at a big overview of the Scriptures, an overview of Genesis, and the most compelling, the most important sentence in history, that we would be encouraged from your Word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are all sorts of theaters in the world. There's that exciting new home theater right, with surround sound speakers. There's those homemade puppet theaters where dads make little voices and children giggle. There are amphitheaters. There's one here in the valley that has 1,200 seats, 1,300 on a grassy knoll. There's another amphitheater just down the road, built of rock. And there are huge theaters across the countries on the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, On the West Coast, you've got the Kodak Theatre, which houses American Idol and odd shaped awards for overpaid actors. And you've got on the you like that? You've got on the East Coast a whole section of a city with about forty different theaters called Broadway. It began in seventeen hundreds as the owners took what was chic and going on in London and brought it to America. And in London, those of you who are from the other side of the pond, right, there's the global theatre. It is the most well-known theater, one of the most well-known in the world. It was Shakespeare's theater, and that theater burned down. Listen to one account. On 29 June, sounds so British, doesn't it, Ben? On 29 June, 1613, the Globe Theater went up in flames during a performance of Henry VIII. A theatrical cannon set off during the performance misfired, igniting the wooden beams and thatching According to one of the few surviving documents of the event, no one was hurt except a man whose burning breeches were put out with a bottle of ale. It was rebuilt the following year. And since then, they cannot find the original blueprints of that global theater. But it was built so that they could display these great stories. The motto of that theater is, All the world plays an actor. And it probably came from one of Shakespeare's stories, all the world is a stage. And whether Shakespeare meant it or not as a Christian idea, John Calvin in his Institute says, While it becomes man seriously to employ his eyes considering the works of God, since a place has been assigned him in this most glorious theater. And what Calvin is doing in the Institute's, this most glorious theater, is he says, Greater and more glorious than the Global Theater, than Broadway, than the Kodak Theater, than the Red Rock Amphitheater, than the beautiful Ford Amphitheater is the creation of God. It is the theater in which all the world is an actor. Our lives tell a story. The question is, do we understand how our lives fit into the bigger story? More important than a good show in New York or Tron at the Capitol Theater or charades charades in my front living room is an understanding of how my life fits in to God's big story. So the question is, do we understand how our lives, do you understand how your life fits in God's gospel theater? Today my goal is to give you a big picture of the Scripture, an overview of Genesis, and we will look at one verse. Turn with me to the table of contents in your Bible. To the table of contents in your Bible. This is the greatest story of all time. This this book that you hold in your hand is not a history book. It is not a book on archaeology, though it is falsifiable. And when it talks about history, it is right. And when it talks about archaeology, it matches up. In fact, I have a few books. I have the Macmillan Bible Atlas created with good archaeology and good maps. You have some in the back of your Bible, maybe. I had one guy say to me a couple of weeks ago that he was going to read through the Bible in the year and read the maps for extra credit. I thought that was funny. Encountering the book of Genesis. This whole book is written like a history book. If you're a student, you see what that looks like. It looks like a history book. Bold titles questions at the end of the chapter. That is not what the Bible is. Though it is falsifiable, that it is right in history, right in archaeology, right in science. It is far more than just a history book, an archaeology book, or a book on science. It is a presentation of a worldview. It is about a sovereign God and how he deals with his wayward covenant people. From general revelation that we see, the mountains that are right outside our building here, to the specific revelation we need. Uh, Without a Bible, we would not know about Jesus as God intended. And therefore, sin would not be atoned for, and history would end in destruction. And so one of your handouts in front of you is a blueprint. Though the blueprints were lost in the global theater, we have a blueprint. And no one can find the original ones of the global theater, but there's no guesswork. God gives us a blueprint here. And in front of you, you see a blueprint of the Old Testament. And if you flip it over, you see a blueprint of the New Testament. The Bible is one book. It's broken into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a 1600s word that just means literally uh, your, your given word. That's when folks talk about this is my last will and testament. It is God's covenant obligation to his people. And you see here an overview That the Bible can be broken down into three major sections. History, poetry, and prophecy. You can further break out history into the law. But I think it's fundamental that we understand the law took place in history. It took place in time and space. When we get into the book of Genesis and we talk about Adam and Eve, they're not just cute stories that someone threw together. This happened. And this is which Moses, and we'll see in a minute, is speaking to the people in the wilderness about something that happened where life began. And then you see the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then links to the land, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then you see the makeup and the mess up of the monarchy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and that Chronicles are just retellings of those stories from God's point of view. You see poetry, that Job is actually an account of a man that lived in the time of Abraham. You see Psalms written mostly by David, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon written by Solomon. And then you see prophecy. That You notice prophecy doesn't truly happen in our Bibles until about the time where the monarchy is going crazy. And then prophecy points us back to the law which happened in history. And if you flip it over, you see the blueprint of the New Testament that if we have an Old Testament and New Testament written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek talking about God, angels, mankind, and creation as we know it, the whole Old Testament is an anticipation of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are a manifestation of Jesus Christ. Acts is the expansion of that church on the earth. The epistles are the instructions on how to live as Christians. And finally, Revelation is the consummation And you see this picture of the New Testament, the history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. They then spread out through Acts. And then you see how the letters all fit underneath that Galatians was Paul's first letter. Then James was written about the time of Galatians. And then you have Paul's other letters, each letter coinciding with the missionary journey. And then you have the general epistles and the prophecy in Revelation telling about the creation of God, the sin of man, the kingdom to come, its Messiah, Jesus Christ, its mission to go to the earth, and it ends with prophecy, history, poetry, prophecy, history, letters, prophecy. It ends with he's coming back. The story ends on a good note, and that gives us hope. And so there's a blueprint. It doesn't fill in everything just like a blueprint. A blueprint isn't the actual building, but it just gives you a picture. And so that you see in your tables of contents all those books. Now you see a picture of how it fits together. And if you just keep going to the right, there's this first book, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the entire Bible, and it sets the scene for all that is to come. And if you think about this whole book, the first book and the last book, did you know that they, they say the same thing? Their book ends to this grand story. The Bible begins in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. The earth is created. The earth is recreated. The sun governs the day. There's no more need for the sun because we will be in the presence of God forever. There will be no more darkness. There's darkness here. Day and night, there's darkness. There will be no more darkness. The first man, the first Adam, marries a wife. The second Adam marries his bride. Mankind rebels in Genesis. Mankind reigns in Revelation. The doom of the serpent is announced in Genesis. It's executed in Revelation. There is suffering and there is sorrow now. There will be no more suffering. Death enters the world in Genesis. There is no more death in Revelation. Mankind is driven from paradise Mankind ends up living in paradise. And there's a tree of life in Genesis that is now guarded by cherubim. And in Revelation 22, it says, we'll be taking of its fruit. It'll give fruits for every month of the year. And I don't think they're there just for us to look at. I think we will eat them. And they will be good. And it begins right here. It's the beginning of the Bible. It's the beginning of the Pentateuch. It is Then the Pentateuch is the beginning of this history of a people of Israel, which is the beginning and the anticipation of a man who would come from that nation, who would carry out that law, and who is to come back. It's the beginning of the gospel. Genesis in and of itself, if you're to read it and compare it to other ancient literature, is similar to the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian creation account or the flood account, it's similar to the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation account. It's similar to the Egyptian tale of two brothers, where you have Joseph and Potiphar that it's in Genesis. It's similar to these stories. Not because it's endorsing those stories, but it shows you that this book is not a random writing. It is a reliable source, and it is credible. In this book, you will find the beginnings of everything, the beginning of the world as we know it the beginning of mankind, the beginning of our fall, the first family feuds, the first lives, the first murders, all of those are found here. You should have another handout in front of you. We'll just move through that rather quickly. Uh, book one is Genesis. It means in Hebrew, there's one word and they call it in the beginning. In the Greek is origin. In the English, we follow the Greek title, the beginnings, the origins of life. And it shows the origin of all things except the eternal God who created all things. Moses is its author. The Old Testament, oh, I don't have enough time to go through verse by verse where it says Moses was the author of the book of Genesis and not just Genesis but the whole Pentateuch. Jesus even refers back to Moses in John 5.46 when he's talking about circumcision and he's linking it back to the first time it was mentioned in Genesis. Recently, scholars have said, well, there's it can't have a book, that, that's fantastic. Obviously, there's no such thing as the supernatural. So I think the Pentateuch was built by at least four documents and they call it the JEPD theory. Some of it was by some men who camped on Jehovah, some of them camped on Elohim, some camped on the priestly documents and some on the Deuteronomy documents. Really? That sounds more fanciful and fabricated than to say that one man wrote this and it's all connected. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and this is huge. While in the wilderness, wandering with the people, he writes the book to let them know this is where it all began. We are a nation going into a land, and this is where it all began. So, this is not just an informational book. Moses wrote this so that we would read it and respond to it, just like its original readers should have read it and responded to it. The themes throughout the book are creation, the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, covenant, providence, and faith. And while there are many themes, there's one purpose if there's one purpose, one authorial intent for the book of Moses, it is that God plans to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And that leads us, well, who's the son of Abraham? And we talk about that every Christmas. The outline can be easily broken down into primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, and patriarchal histories, 1 through 12. This is all, 1 through 11 is just setting us up for the history of a nation. I won't go through the rest of this, but it says in the beginning, those first ten words in English are the greatest sentence of the greatest story ever written. It is a hero story, and so God is the hero of the book. If you look at that wordle right there, which takes the, the biggest uh, conglomerate of words in Genesis, you see which words stick out the most. God the Father is the Lord. And he is the hero of this book as he is the hero of the entire Bible and every other book. It is fifty chapters long, one thousand five hundred and thirty three verses. It's a long book. It covers more time. There's more time covered in Genesis than all other books combined. That is amazing. And if you read the next sentence there, but it fits into a booger book. Booger is a French word for mistake. <sighs> it should be bigger. It fits into a bigger book. It is not a French word for mistake. Genesis in and of itself Fits into the scriptures, and it talks about the character of God. There are three major interpretive challenges to the Book of Genesis. Really, did a God? Is there a God? Did He create? And did He did He create in six days or day ages? And, and this God who created, really, He would flood that world that He made. He, he's a He's not only creator; He's judge. And then, what about all these other ancient Near Eastern? Um, Customs, they're descriptive of what went on, not prescriptive for life. On the back side, you can read more about the Bible is the book of beginnings and Genesis is the book that begins the book. From creation and blessing, Alan Ross said, Moses wasn't just writing Genesis to record history or to tell a story. This is huge. He was recording history through a story to teach a theological point. It is history, it is story and narrative, but it has a theological point. There is a reason for why Moses is writing. And there you can see a potential preaching schedule because this is so long. We're going to break it up. In this first semester was to get through primeval history. This sets the foundation. It builds the biblical worldview. And then we'll take some time off, but hopefully, Lord willing... You preach through the first section, take the summer off. You preach through the section on Abraham. And then Isaac, take the next summer off. And you finish in December 2012 with the story of Jacob. By that time, our Bible boys will have memorized the entire book. So I will just have them stand up here and hit chapter 2. Or not 2, but chapter 34. And I'll just have them repeat it. And then we'll just say, Notice. You can look at your Bible or you can just hear it spew from, mouth from these boys. How cool is it to take the very first book and to make it your book? How do we read Genesis? Everything in here is worth reading and reflecting on. It's sufficient, but it's not exhaustive. Moses, Moses could have said other things, but he chose these things to put them in here in a particular order for us to wrestle with them. If you notice, if you flip over to Genesis 2, 4, some Bibles will say this is the beginning of. Some Bibles will say these are the generations of. That is the literary framework. That is how the Bible, that is how Moses put it together. And you start with this is the the creation or this is the beginnings of the heaven and the earth. And then we'll narrow it down to Noah. And then we'll narrow it down to Terah. And then we'll narrow it down to one man. And it's like a zoom lens taking us in that here's where you came from, people in the wilderness. Here's where you came from. If you're living in the time of the monarchy and going, why is everything going wrong? Here's where you came from. Here's where your nation came from. Or if you're living in the Babylonian exile and you're wrestling and they're trying to teach Daniel, the Enuma Elish. No, he flips back to Genesis. This is where he came from. And it came down to Noah. And through Noah, there was a family preserved and it goes to Terah and to Abraham. And then to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And it funnels it down. It is a hero story in the truest sense. And if you were to cross reference that to Hebrews 11, the chapter on the heroes of the faith, there are more people mentioned from Genesis in chapter 11 than any other book in the Bible. All of that is a broad overview that the, the grand story is there is creation. Of man in the world, there's the fall of man which affects the world. There's redemption. All of that happens within the first three and a half chapters of Genesis. And from that point forward, there's the restoration of humanity according to God's glory. The Bible, the story of God's glory, found in Jesus Christ. Genesis is the beginning of that story. Which brings us to one verse. And it's pretty much the same in every translation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you look it up in the NIV, in the NAS, in the ESV, the NLT, the New King James, whatever version you have, at least the ones I've looked at, they all start the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this first chapter in 1-1 through 2-3. You're going, to look, you're going to find four things. God created everything. God created every, everything good, and God created man and woman special. God created, God created everything. God created everything good. God created man and woman special. We're going to deal with the first two today. God created, and God created everything. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before this world began, God in the Trinitarian state existed. One of the questions I want to ask when I get to heaven is, what did you do? What have you been doing? I mean, you've always existed. What? Tell me about that. That blows my mind. And he goes, well, we'll sit back and for the next trillion years we'll just work on <laughs> what we did prior to this isaiah forty twenty one says do you not know do you not hear has it not been told to you from the beginning have you not understood the foundations of the earth and that's what we're looking at today the foundations of everything it begins with in the beginning and then the very next word is god Elohim. It is, it is in and of itself plural. And so we start, if, if we were to go off last week's sermon, we had an exhortation to be confident in and committed to this word. We could just go with presuppositional apologet- apologetics and say, this is the God we know and love. But there may be some of you here and there may be some listening, I hope, who don't believe in God, and they logically think he does not exist. Well, we have two answers. He either does exist or he doesn't exist. And so this God can be presented, the evidence can be given to him in three three arguments that are the best. There are four traditional arguments. I present three that are the best. The first is the cosmological argument. It comes with, from the word cosmos, which means world, which tells us the world in which we see began somewhere. And if we're all in agreement that logic works, then the effect cannot be greater than its cause. I had the opportunity with a friend of mine to visit with a non-Christian this past Friday, and my whole agenda was to talk about logic and and to get one to admit, yes, you're right, according to logic, the effect cannot be greater than the cause. Great. Great then you can't believe in evolution. Evolution is illogical. The, the effects of evolution are far greater than their supposed cause. Many have called this God, this Elohim, the uncaused cause, and thus we believe in creation and not evolution. Because there is a world and there had to be something outside the world that created the world. To have a watch... You must have a watchmaker. Then there's the teleological argument, which comes from the word telos, which means purpose, design, or order. And so this uncaused cause created with purpose. If in the first one you had origin, here you have origin with intent. You can watch the movie. We have a copy of it back in our table there called Expelled, where the institutions of today, even the beloved Baylor are trying to suppress men who are showing us not only do we have an origin and a designer, but it's an intelligent designer. You see, not only do you have a watchmaker, but the watchmaker made a watch to tell time. And then you have the axiological argument, which comes from the word judgment, denoting that there are values in which we live by. Morality, love this, is not relative to culture. In this meeting on Friday, a friend of mine said, what if I, friend, were to rape your children? He said that would not be right. Good. We're at least dealing with a sane man. Okay, well, what if, but that's our culture, okay? We'll take it out of our culture. What if your, your children were to be raped by a culture in some third-word country that, that uh, didn't believe the way we believe? It'd still be wrong. Exactly. Because God has made it inherent within you that morals are above culture. The watchmaker who makes the watch and makes it with a purpose also said it's wrong for you to take somebody's watch without asking. In conclusion, one pastor has said, taking together the cumulative case of the various arguments for God's existence reveals that God exists. He is the intelligent designer, the powerful cause of all creation. And apart from time, but at work in time, and he's morally good. In the beginning, God, which the evidence, if people approach it logically and humbly, all leans towards God. And this God created, bara in the Hebrew, which means to make something new or fresh. And it is only, catch this, this word, this word created is only and always used with God as its subject. In the Old Testament. Only and always used with God as its subject. Now, it's not always creating something new. David, with God as the subject, said, God created me a clean heart. He's saying, take my sinful heart and renew it. Reform it. But it's always used with God as its subject. And so Elohim bara, God created. It's a plural noun, but it's a singular verb. And even then, the Jews were saying, we believe in a monolithic God who created the universe. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a Hebrew merism, which just means everything. Psalm 1-2, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That's what Day and night. That doesn't mean that that person's walking around, hey, would you like to marry me? Um, I'm meditating on the word day and night. Right? No, it just means this person's delight all the time is God's word. God created the entire universe. The earth that we see, the show Third Rock from the Sun, is just one in a plethora of other stars, which is just one at the center of this universe, which is just in a plethora of other universes. More on that next week. And so in Hebrew, you have seven words. In English, you have ten words. But this sounds the foundation for everything to come. That before the Kodak Theater or before Broadway or the global theater has a stage on which the actors of the world display their talents, it has to be built upon a solid foundation. It has to have a blueprint. And the blueprint better be accurate. Because if the blueprint's not accurate, you can go way off. I think it was in Mexico or South America there were some guys that got a blueprint for a house, and they read it in meters instead of feet. That's not good, is it? What happens when a door is read in meters instead of feet? right? Yeah, the door, which should be this wide, is, no, really, it's, you could put a hummer through it, right? And 10-foot ten, ten ceilings become really big. You can put some of that French art up there, kind of if you were to look at you could put paintings that big in your foyer. The blueprint's got to be right. And the foundation has to be laid because if the foundation has cracks in it, everything will fall. And so the foundations for the entire scriptures are laid for us in this first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis one one is the beginning of Genesis one through 2, 1, 1 through two three, which is really just the beginning of Genesis one through eleven twenty six, which is really just the beginning of the book of Genesis, which is really just the beginning of the Pentateuch, which is really just the beginning of the Old Testament, which is really just the beginning of the entire Bible, which is what God has given us. And in it he says, I've created everything for my glory. And what you have here in those ten words, follow me, is you have an uncaused cause. You have a prime mover, God. You have an initial force created. The heavens, you have space. The earth, you have mass. And when you have mass in space, what do you have? Time in the beginning. Science is right at home in the Scriptures. Science is right at home in the scriptures. Dr. J.P. Moreland says it like this, to claim that science is the only way to know reality is a self-refuting statement. He goes on to point out scientific facts which point to an intelligent designer. The universe began to exist at a certain point in time. Even your hardcore, illogical, misguided evolutionists stop somewhere, Friday well, science proves right up to a billionth of a second where the, when the old world began. Right up to a billionth of a second. Well, then what, what happens before that? We don't know. It was, it was my best not to be sarcastic, just to sit back and go, great. If what you say is true, then you're going on faith. What you don't know. Well, I don't want to call it faith. Well, what would you call it? Believing in what I cannot see. It's faith. And, and, and science proves this and there are certain gaps, but we believe in what we cannot see that science will eventually prove those one day. And I just say, so you believe in something. That your entire theory is built on belief in something that you cannot see. Science is right at home in the Bible, and J.P. Moreland says it, ex- it exists at a certain point in time. And the exceedingly precise fine-tuning of the universe with multiple and very physical factors, the charge of an electron, the mass of a proton, the strength of gravity, the rate at which galaxies are expanding from one another, without which life could not exist, and the existence of the mind and the conscience, which is inexplicable if one holds to evolution and mechanical. and and, and holding to that mechanical theory. It is not fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and science, like all other subjects, submits to the Scriptures. And those scientists who are true, those ID guys, those friends of ours, those men and women who love the Lord their God with all their heart, and strength, and who are wise and have PhDs with names we can't pronounce, they show us the heavens do declare the glory of God. And this is where we start to build a biblical worldview. You don't begin to hear, and it goes way off. Because if you do not have a creator, you create something yourself, and you become your own autonomous little God, and then you start to say your values are relative to yourself because you really don't know how to spread those out to other places. But if you begin where the Bible begins, you have one God creating with order. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith, this is huge, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made was not made out of things that are visible. That means when God created, He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. We were teaching our kids this this week and I said, try it. Try it. They, they saw a leaf and they saw the intricacies of a leaf and how a leaf is connected to the tree and the tree is connected to the roots and they were they were wowed by all the the complexity and intelligent design in a leaf. And then the next day it was God created with powerful words. Try it. Apple. Didn't work. So my son being the (sighs) sly one that he is, we're all looking somewhere else and he puts an orange up there and he goes, Orange! (laughs) Good try, Luke. You did cre- not create ex nihilo out of nothing. But that, because it's faith, doesn't mean that it's an unreasonable faith. We use logic. We use other forms. And we say, yes, this is where the evident points, evidence points. There is a world that's bigger enough. us. Uh, so it couldn't have just come to us randomly because it has order and intent and purpose. And it seems to be it was created with good in mind. And so you're thinking, that's great, but where does Jesus fit in all this? You've just given us a good Jewish lecture. Turn with me to John 1. We'll connect it to our Savior. And John chapter 1 would be three verses worth memorizing, putting in your heart. Because John knew who he was re- writing to, and, and he said something interesting. In the beginning. In the beginning. And those Jews at that time reading this say, wait a second, I've heard that before. Whoa. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Keep going, John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. This Elohim starts to make more sense. There's this thing John's using, not only writing to Jews, but writing in Greco-Roman culture, uses the word logos. There's this Word, and this Word was with God, as if there was the Word, and then there was God. And the Word was God. Jesus, the Word. If you look at verse 14, and this Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. So many Old Testament connections in that. He tabernacled among us. If you go to John chapter 3, He calls Himself the temple. And so in three chapters in John, we get the God who existed before the world, the tabernacle which guided the people through the wilderness to the temple of God's very presence. And it says this Word was with God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. The word, not God, through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning. And the world was made through him. And John goes on to tell us, In him was life. And this life was the light of men and this light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome or comprehend it. It's the idea of the light and darkness that we will look into next week. Jesus comes. If that is the physical light, here is your spiritual light. The one who came to earth in the form of a baby, who lived a life that we could not live, a perfect life, and died a death that we should have died, a death for sin was there at the beginning he created the world and so the main thing i wanted our family to get this week is god created and jesus was there and that jesus didn't see fit to hold equality with god something to be grasped hey i created the world what do i need to go down into that world for he didn't consider some equality with god something to be grasped but he emptied himself coming in the form of a bondservant And he came and he died, and he didn't just die, but he died on the cross. That At his name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. So where do we begin? We begin in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, Help us to build a biblical worldview. If we have not already, help us to begin where you began. And that is letting us know through your true word that all of life begins and its origin are with you, an intelligent designer, an uncaused cause, who is morally good. Pray, Lord, as we walk through this book that our faith would be strengthened, that our worldview would be would either be confirmed, changed, or expanded to see who we are, where we came from, what went wrong, why we're here, and what we should do until your son returns. We thank you that you are God. We thank you that in your providential plan. You saved us by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the death of your Son. We give you all praise and glory. Help us to understand the big picture. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Those men who are going to help with communion would come forward.